Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Bartley P. Griffith, a cardiothoracic surgeon from Baltimore, Maryland, who delivered the John H. Gibbon Jr. Lecture at Clinical Congress 2023. In his lecture, What's New May Be Old, Xenotransplantation, Dr. Griffith shares details about the more than 50-year history of xenotransplantation, including his recent experiences with two human xenotransplants of genetically modified pig hearts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Uh, it's been great uh, to be here early and, and see the, the old friends and some new friends in the audience. Uh, it strikes me that this, um, that this audience has a broad demographic, you know, uh, age-wise, and I, I'm glad for that because part of my message this morning is going to be why some of us old guys, old again, it's new again, um, are important for the young guys. And uh, I think that uh, as I first came to this, uh, this meeting uh, and presented work uh, at the forum, I remember uh, Bob Bartlett rising and commenting on my paper. And uh, that was the beginning of, a, and still is, a long relationship of mentorship. So um, thank you for coming. Let's get on to it. Well, um, there are more than 300,000 patients who have end-stage heart disease in this country. Um, there are 3,500 patients waiting for a heart transplant, and the average wait is about 235 days. Um, three in 1,000 deaths may result in a donor heart. Death after cardiac transplantation may include between 10, 10 to 20% per year due to immune suppression and its complications. There's much to be done. This is a heart contracting, um, but not a usual heart. This maybe is a glimpse to the future. You think the xenotransplantation of the heart may be the future. It's not. It's here and it's evolving. The future may be the establishment of uh, 3D constructed, cell-laden, uh, IPS-based uh, contractal hearts that are non allergenic because they're syngenetic. They'll come from your IPS cells if you're in need, and they will simply populate a swine matrix of, uh, of heart. To dream is really important, and, uh, and never to be quite satisfied with where you are. We have challenges ahead, much to be done with xenotransplantation, but the field of cardiac replacement for surgeons is wide open. It's alive, and it's exciting, and it's really fun to talk about. The John Gibbon lecture. You know, John Gibbon is not somebody that I had to kind of look up. Most heart surgeons know very well that he, you know, really 
spiked open heart surgery with his foundational work in heart-lung machine development and its use successfully in humans. I went to Jefferson Medical College and of course he is the man there and uh, there are lots of stories and I had the great privilege of working with John Y. Templeton Jr. who was with John, John uh, Gibbon during that uh, foundational procedure and became his primary uh, go-to surgeon as he aged. Um, John Gibbon worked on his project a long time, and he did so with his wife, and uh, it uh, gave him an opportunity to spend many long nights in the, in the laboratory. He didn't have to go home, because home was where he was working with his wife, Maylie. Of all the different attri uh, attributions um, uh, that uh, John, uh, John Gibbon has been uh, accounted for, I think this is one that grabs me the most. I kind of ran into this in uh, Harry Schumacher's A Dream of the Heart, and he described uh, at the end of a long day and many, many days, a successful outcome with an experimental heart-lung machine used in a cat. And, um, and here he's, um, he's able to uh, draw this quote from, uh, from Gibbon. And Gibbon says, I will never forget the day when we were able to screw down the clamp all the way, completely occluding the pulmonary artery. With the extracorporeal blood circuit in operation and no change in the animal's blood pressure. So using the most rudimentary stuff, he used uh, uh, corks that were cut and drilled for valves, he used uh, um, rubber cots for uh, finger cots for blood pumps and just a screen oxygenator that uh, basically was a screen over which blood dripped and oxygen was uh, ventilated, but he made it work. And then the last sentence is just striking for me, and it's what this whole talk is about. My wife and I threw our arms around each other and danced around the laboratory. Who's had a moment like that in their career? And if you have, you're a lucky person. And there are lots of opportunities uh, for all the age groups represented today in the audience to do that. And I encourage the youth to have those because that's how we're gonna go forward. And that's how much left to be done is going to be accomplished. So this is our current patient who underwent um, a Xeno heart transplant uh, now, uh, 32 days ago. He is, um, he is 57 years old. He's been disabled for about 10 years from the NIH. His career there was spent as a histopathologic uh, technician. So he would read the slides, he prepare the slides, and he worked in the ID division. And so when we did his first heart biopsy on post-op day 13, we thought it'd be great to ask him to read it. And so what you're experiencing is that moment when our patient, and yes, he has a pig's heart. I mean, I still can't get around that. He has a pig's heart. And now he's telling us how good his own heart biopsy looks. Perfectly normal heart. All the way across. To right there. Yeah. That's right starting to break down. Yeah, so you're, you're happy about it? I'm very happy about that. Great. That's exactly what, okay, so, just read. Yeah. This one looks like completely normal heart to me. Yeah. And that's definitely what we wanted to see. So I should, I should conclude my lecture with that, um, but I won't. It's pretty neat, right? He has a pig's heart. Well, my primary mentor at the University of Pittsburgh was Henry Bonson. Henry Bonson 
was the president of the American College of Surgeons in 1983, and I heard his presidential address, which he titled Challenges. He did so because when he landed from Hopkins in Pittsburgh, he found a pretty sleepy place with lots of problems. And he, he would say that the problems almost overwhelmed him, and that's a lot for Hank Bonson. Those of you who knew Hank or knew of him knew that uh, there weren't many things that he couldn't overcome as he descends Karsten's Ridge on McKinley. Hank, uh, Hank ended up evolving his thoughts about problems, and for all the chairpersons in the, uh, in the audience, um, he, he decided not to use the word problem, but to use the word challenge. He did that. He said it's, it's more, more important for a surgeon's temperament to use the word challenge, not problem, because a problem is something thrown forward for solution. A challenge, however, is a stimulus calling forth the best. So no more problems, just challenges, and uh, let's move on from that. One of his greatest recruitments um, was Tom Starzl. Tom Starzl hit the ground running in Pittsburgh. He had had difficulty at Denver, then, then LA, and Hank Bonson was a friend and gave him, I think, enough uh, pull on the range so Tom didn't get too far away and, and too far away from the mid, mid line of the, of the road. Um, like he could do left, uh, left alone without uh, guidance. And so he trusted Bonson, he came to Pittsburgh, and he basically became penicillin to transplantation. He enabled transplantation as we know it. Before, uh, before Tom, uh, there was no liver transplantation. Kidney transplantation was maybe a year survival. Heart transplantation was still months of survival. Tom brought the drugs, the energy, and the absolutely dazzling um, uh, kind of attention to the problems. His approach, which was self-described as a blitzkrieg, um, included long days, lots of bleeding, blood would literally come under the uh, operating room door into the hallway, um, but he got it done and he persevered. And as a young surgeon in the department, uh, one could not help but be drawn towards his magnetism. What he was doing was fantastic. And, uh, you know, he said, do hearts, do heart lungs, do double lungs, do heart kidneys, do heart livers. I mean, there was no bounds to, to where he felt transplantation could be used to help a patient. As a consequence, um, University of Pittsburgh grew like crazy in, in heart transplantation. This is a Rob Rogers uh, cartoon um, from that era. And um, it says, I've come to Presby for a heart transplant. I expect to be an inpatient. Well, that, we see that currently, right? Our emergency rooms might look like this now. But at the time, it was a pretty funny cartoon that people would be coming, you know, in severe heart failure, and they'd be uh, waiting just to get in the hospital. But that was the truth. We had not enough donors, even then. So we began to think about mechanical circuitry support and other kinds of things. Because I was at Pittsburgh and because I was uh, assigned heart transplantation and, uh, and felt that, uh, again, the challenge was there, um, I had an opportunity um, to represent that program. As such, 
there was a program at Good Morning America, which was a 20-year um, kind of anniversary of Bernard's first heart transplant in humans. Um, and if you would just spare me, I have two quick clips to give you here. Um, so Joan London was the interviewer, and the cast of characters included Bernard, Griffith, and Jarvik. And I kind of felt like I was in a tennis match between those two during this interview, and if you look at the interview over a long period, my head just goes back and forth and says very little. But nonetheless, I felt honored to be there, so I want to try to run this for you. It is now 15 minutes after. Joining us this morning to mark the 20th anniversary of the first human heart transplant are three guests. Dr. Christian Barnard is the surgeon who performed that first cardiac transplant in 1967. He is now scientist in residence at Oklahoma Baptist Medical Center in Oklahoma City. Dr. Bartley Griffith is a cardiothoracic transplant surgeon at Presbyterian University Hospital of Pittsburgh. It is the biggest organ transplant center in the country now. And Dr. Robert Jarvik is the inventor of the Jarvik 7 mechanical heart used in the first artificial heart implant operation in 1982. It's a pleasure to have you. So, it went on and on, and my head was going back and forth for most of it. But then there was a really interesting clip that I pulled out of this. And, and you know, you wonder when you got the idea, when you wondered whether, you know, an animal organ might be useful in replacement of the human heart. Listen to what Bernard says. This is, this is classic and really good from these operations about uh, future research. You brought up uh, animal transplants. Uh, where might we be going in that? 1987. Well, uh, there's no reason why an animal heart cannot be used because it's also a pump. The only problem is that when you uh, transplant from a different species, uh, yeah. you really the problem of rejection is not controllable today. But I believe that as we uh, develop better methods of controlling rejection, then eventually animal hearts will be used first as bridging devices and then eventually as permanent replacements. Because that's one thing you've really learned from all of this, you're really being able to study the immune system. Well, that was fun. And it was fun to go back and look at it and have those um, memories. You know, you wonder when you did begin to think about things of this nature. And here was this icon talking about animal organs back in 1987, and I'm sitting next to him. So that was pretty cool. Well, things, things have gone pretty well over 54 years of heart transplantation. And, and um, I think it's, it's worth a little bit of, of time to compare the Bernard era, if you wish, which then gave way to the Shumway era um, very soon. But and then to where we, we are and were when we performed our first transplant. Uh, Norm Shumway in 1967, November, just a month before the, uh, the Bernard case, basically um, was indicating that um, time had come for the transplant to occur in humans. Bernard was listening. We too in Maryland had felt the time had come. We were told by the FDA that based upon our non-human primate work, baboon work, that we would be um, likely to be in a position to present to the FDA an IND for human use in a multi-center trial in about 2024. So this was late 2021. That sounded like a really long time away, and it meant that we would have to do two more years of studies on those non-human primates to get them each, each a year 
with the same protocol. So running in, in place on, on, on ice, if you wish, doing the same protocol, not really learning anything, right? Just to qualify a group of animals uh, for a clinical study that uh, the regulatory uh, um, folks thought was necessary. Um, we had just accomplished a nine-month survival in a baboon with a 10-gene-altered uh, pig heart. Um, and it followed uh, lots of experience with intra-abdominal um, use. And that pulsating thing in this, in, this, in this abdomen has been pulsating for over 784 days. So it seems like you know, we were in many years of experience with, with xeno heart transplantation, at least in a baboon model, either working or non-working. So we felt we were at equipose to go forward. Um, the regulatory concerns between us, uh, you can see on the right, uh, that's a grease board, and, uh, and it includes a lot of check marks and a lot of boxes. We had to satisfy the FDA a priori. We had to have an IRB, and our hospital had to go along with all the necessary risks, not the least of which were cost risks. And uh, were it not for uh, Dr. Law, who's here in attendance, uh, we would never have done this because there was a chairman that stood up and said, I'll figure out a way to pay for your losses. And we were able that night to convince the board to go forward the next morning. Thank you, Chris. Um, Cape Town, the only concern really was, how are we going to take a heart out of, out of a patient that's beating? There was no brain death at the time. There was no standard of care with brain death. You were dead when a doctor said you were. That's about it. And this was a, a concern that, um, that Dr. Shumway and Dr. Lauer um, had uh, working in the field that it was problematic. And they were concerned that a heart that stopped, uh, like our current DCD hearts, uh, might not be very, very successfully used. So the only regulatory uh, concern was, do we have a doctor that says, the donor's dead. Um, Bernard did his procedure, uh, and uh, it's interesting. He he was written that um, that he phoned his uh, superintendent of the hospital. Hello, this is the middle of the night. Uh, we've done a heart transplant tonight. Superintendent says, "Why the hell did you wake me up to tell me that you've done a heart transplant? I know you've been doing them on dogs for a long time." He, then he said, "Well, we didn't do it in a dog tonight." We did it on a human. So he said, how's the patient doing? Chris said, well. He said, thanks for calling me. Okay. He phoned uh, his head of the Department of Surgery, told him also, why didn't you call me and tell me that you were going to do that? I said, I didn't think it was necessary. Our life was considerably more complicated. And to show you that, nobody trusted me to even lift a fork or a spoon, let alone a scalpel. And so there's Chris Law and the head of the hospital an ENT surgeon, uh, Bert O'Malley, uh, giving me the final instructions in terms of how to do the Xeno heart transplant that, that morning. What about this wonderful thing, the gene-edited pig heart? Is gene editing here to stay, and will that really get us to Xeno transplantation of heart, livers, and kidneys? I, I think so. If you take a wild heart pig, and you put that heart into a baboon, within moments, that heart infarcts. It infarcts in a classic way by thrombosis, and that's a thrombosed heart. About 15 minutes after it was placed into the abdomen of, um, and hooked up to the aorta and cava uh, of a baboon. 
So if you start to play with genes and you start to find out why that heart's hyperacutely rejecting, maybe you change those genes around. So there are 30,000 genes in a pig. And we separated from the pig millions of years, like 30 million years ago from, from the pig in terms of the human development. So we're not all that close. So of the 30,000 genes that the pig has, we changed 10 and expected it to work. Remarkable. Hubris? I don't know. It was foundation based on laboratory, and there was a lot of dancing in the laboratory on different occasions. But it worked. There were, um, there were four genes that were removed. One was a growth receptor gene, because pigs grow to 400 pounds. We didn't want the heart to grow so big that it would grow out of the chest. There was some evidence in the kidney work and some in the heart work that, that hearts did overgrow. As, as you might imagine, the pig heart and those other organs were preordained to grow. So we knocked that out, and then three carbohydrate sugars were removed from the endothelial surface, the gal family of carbohydrates. Those were the knockouts. Well, it was also decided that other things needed to be knocked in. So four out, six in. That's how we got to 10. And the six in were in three different families. Complement regulation, which was deficient in the pig organ relative to the human. Coagulation, again, deficient relative to the human. And finally, inflammation, which was very much part of the early work in, in the studies. It showed a lot of inflammatory uh, processes. We placed uh, inflammatory regulators. Well, when you do this to a heart, uh, do those things express themselves when you transplant them? Well, this is our first patient. And uh, the heart biopsy of this patient is shown on the left. That's his first heart biopsy of our first patient at 33 days post-implant. And the brown in those biopsies actually are the immune histochemical stains that show that the genes that we're looking for with that stain are present. So there's a fair amount of brown in those classifications of knock-ins. Those six knock-in genes are all shown there. Negative control is in the middle, so you can see what the bland biopsy would look like without those genes expressing. And then in our post-mortem heart, when the patient uh, expired at 60 days, his heart looks like the right panel. The blot on the right just shows another, another way of showing that same thing, that our genes are active. The wild, the wild type pig is on the right-hand side which, with a negative head of the column, and then the altered donor pig um, is shown on the left. So we are expressing what was knocked in, and we're not expressing what was knocked out. Well, how is Bernard gonna take a heart out and put it into his recipient without being accused of murder, which he was ultimately, as was Shumway and Lauer. You take, you take a patient's heart out and the heart's beating. Well, the only way to do it is to wait till the heart stops. Just like today with DCD donors, that's exactly what Bernard did. He took the ventilator away from a 30-year-old um, uh, patient that just hours before had been hit by a car and her heart, um, you know, was a good young heart. And um, he let the heart, after apnea occurred, uh, go into V-fibrillation for about six minutes. He then did a rapid sternotomy and placed that donor on cardiopulmonary bypass so that the ischemic time to that organ was about six minutes. 
He then removed the heart, put it in an ice bath, basically, and ran it next door where the main operation was occurring. But before he started to sew it in, he hooked it up to a side part of the cardiopulmonary bypass and reperfused continuously that donor heart until he got to the aorta and he had to stop it. So that the ischemia of that heart was just the five minutes after apneic arrest till he could get the donor on bypass and then the few minutes it took in the implant period when he could do the aorto-aortic anastomosis when he had to take him off perfusion. So total ischemic time was about 12 minutes. Pretty good and pretty smart surgery. So that worked well. It came off bypass after two attempts and uh, the first patient, as you know, lived for under three weeks, but it was a remarkable experience and um, shocked the world. We used a different technique. Um, we used a technique that perfused the heart continuously um, with uh, a combination of, uh, of electrolytes and protein and even cocaine in the mix uh, at a low pressure and a tepid temperature. And uh, this is put in a box. Uh, there's a company called Exvivo that we used. And here it is on the way um, from our laboratory, which is kind of a shabby place uh, and uh, connected through the warren of, of uh, you know, old hospital connections. And then uh, it made its way all the way over to the Maryland Hospital uh, into the operating room where we performed that first procedure. Um, what about candidates? How do we get to candidates? This is a cartoon, this is maybe a little rude, I don't know. Um, this is a cartoon of Ra's uh, chest, and I was reading in the, in the New York Times and this cartoon came up. And this is a character that says, well, the end is near, why not have that ice cream cone, right? So I began to think that in many ways, our patients are the same. They are not candidates for traditional heart replacement uh, techniques, they, uh, they are excluded from allotransplantation for one of several reasons. They are excluded from mechanical circuitry support from another host of reasons. So they're alive and they don't want to die. But I have found them to be remarkable people. I've talked about four potential candidates and um, they've all accepted the challenge. And they accept it with the idea that they don't want to pass. But if they do, they want to do something good and they want us to learn. So I think it was pretty neat. Um, and so in essence, these, these young candidates, young in the field, uh, they're they giving their bodies up, right? They're, they're not just donating an organ, they're donating their bodies while they're still alive with the hope of benefiting. But um, we can't promise them benefit except by what they might teach us. And that's the cornerstone of the ethics of proceeding. Our first patient, um, was pretty sick. Uh, Louis Waskansky, which was um, the South African patient, he, he wasn't quite as sick, although he had had multiple admissions uh, to the hospital for heart failure. In fact, probably modern day heart failure therapy would have kept him from needing you know, a transplanted heart at that time because we do better at taking care of patients now in heart failure. But he was a funny guy. He lived across the street from the Jewish cemetery and, um, and he, uh, he told Bernard, at least I haven't far to go. Um, so uh, Dave Bennett, in his own way, uh, was a little bit the same. He desperately wanted a human heart. He couldn't get it. He agreed. And uh, I told him I, I had a really hard time 
telling him he was going to have a heart replaced by an animal. So I went through that whole thing. And then I, I just really couldn't get the word pig out, you know, that he was going to get a pig's heart. You know, I don't know what he thought. He finally asked me, and I told him pig. And then he said, will I oink? And then I knew that he was okay with the process. So he went ahead. He was really sick. He had had a low platelet count, a low white cell count, um, and just really was too sick for almost anything. But we proceeded. Our second case is shown here, uh, which is interesting. This was a pre-op picture of our patient. So this patient's in trouble. Most of you will recognize that his lungs are full of fluid, both by CT scan and by radiograph chest x-ray. The other thing was, um, Dr. Law thought it was a really good idea to bring the dean to meet this patient because the dean was going to help pay for it. So the dean was all excited. He's a pulmonologist, so we're in trouble. We got a dean that's a pulmonologist and the head of the hospital is an ENT. And uh, so we, we constantly between those two specialties. But the dean came to see our patient. The patient, as I showed you, was pretty sick and a lot, of, a lot of fluid. So we were trying to hurry up the procedure, but all the potentates had to come and meet him first. So let's make this one work. So this was his, his um, EKG. So he's talking to the dean. Then all of a sudden, he goes into VTAC. Yes. It degenerates to VFib. Machine tries to tack him out of that. Nope. Finally, he gets a shock. That's a shock. It converts him. And now he's being paced by his AICD, post-cardioversion. The team around him, of course, is giving CPR. Now, they're starting to compress him because they don't feel any pulses on the guy. After about the fifth compression, he screams. He says, stop. <laughs> he says, that hurts. So we knew he was resuscitated. He was pretty sick, too. So this is our first patient, shown post-op day four. Looks like any other heart transplant patient, except that his... Um, his physical therapist is teaching him how to hold his head up. He was so sick. He'd been in the, in the hospital for, I think it was 67 days, and on ECMO for 48 of those days. So he hadn't really been very vertical, and he was really sick. So these are the kind of people that, that give, give us an opportunity to use their bodies, but with whom we struggle in terms of um, uh, great opportunities. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, we were thrilled with this, and... We were doing a little bit of dancing of our own in the, in the hallways, pretty pleased with ourselves. Um, Bernard also um, had some pleasures, and, and he was uh, seen you know, around the world with, with starlets, and he was with all the fancy people. Not everybody loved us. This is an email that, that I got, and it simply says, may you all rot in hell for even trying this indefensible procedure. Doesn't always work out. Um, so, uh, we have to understand people have perspective in this procedure. And, um, you know, an animal has to, has to die for a human to live. It doesn't bother me, but it doesn't please me. Anyhow. So, this is what happened to our patient number two that had all that fluid in his lungs. This is his first post-operative picture. Now, the clever surgeons in the audience will know, hey, you just drained pleural effusions and you made that look a lot better, which is true. But also, his, his, his pulmonary vascularity is much less. And it basically shows that that now nice, narrow cardiothoracic silhouette, as described by the pig heart beating in this man's chest, is a far better pump than what he had to start with. That's pretty undeniable. And this is what that pump looks like. 
I've described it as a rock star, and it is. This is a longitudinal strain study, which basically shows the squeezability in, in longitudinal instead of circumferential look. But these, these numbers we never see in allotransplantation, early after transplantation. So, I mean, a remarkable pump. And so it worked well. And uh, there was no evidence whether or not the pig heart would work in the human. It does. This is our current patient who's now uh, gone beyond 30 days. And uh, he looks pretty good. This was the gentleman that was reading his histopathologic study. Gives you hope. And here he is playing cards. Now, he's not quite ready to mobilize home, but, uh, and we have challenges because he was pretty sick before surgery. But he gives us hope. One of the things we have to pay attention to and we've learned a lot about is the human anti-pig antibodies. All of us in this audience have antibodies to pigs. Some more and some less. It has no, nothing to do with whether you're a vegetarian or a vegan <laughs> or whether you raise pigs as a kid. Um, you get these snippets of, of pig, um, pig DNA basically uh, in your GI tract from viruses which have acquired them. Um, and so we all really have a different, uh, um, a different sensitization. Some of us would have high, some of us low. And I think we're not at a place where we can take on patients with real high sensitization. If you look at the lower, lower part of this slide, the red and, red and blue, that is, in fact, the consistently low anti-pig antibodies. This is our second patient. We've been able to keep them lower. You can see they started higher. We nailed them with a number of medications. And now we're able to keep them low. We have a very special um, kind of new immune suppressant that uh, I think will impact allotransplantation for specific indications, but it's an uh, accessory uh, pathway blockade, an anti-CD40 um, ligand. Um, very powerful and very important, but then again, the drug has never been used in a human, so we didn't know how to dose it. The upper part of this slide shows the blood levels, which we ran off to the company that gave us the drug for this case, um, every day. And so every day we gave it, we had to run out and get the and, and uh, trough to try to identify how our dosing would be. About 20% of the time, he's been underdosed. This is his biopsy. First biopsy at uh, 13 days. We couldn't biopsy our first patient sooner because he had no platelets. This patient has platelets, so we biopsied him. Looked pretty good to me. Everybody else was, uh, you know, pretty happy with it. Then the immune histochemical staining came out. That brown is a complement stain, so he's got every capillary full of complement. Well, what ha what's complement doing there? It's part of the process, right? Complement, then antibody, and then thrombosis. Well, we were gonna wait for the antibodies to see if he had any human uh, anti-pig antibodies that's deposited. He's full of it. So this is the same gentleman that uh, you saw playing cards on his 30th day. Day 13, this is what his biopsy looked like. We did not know what to do. We panicked. We really did. We, um, we gave one dose of pharesis and then we started to call. We called everybody we could who we thought might help us. Most of the experts said, just hold the phone. Just keep what you're doing. Make sure that uh, um, he doesn't get infection from overimmune suppression. This is probably absorption of pre-existing antibodies onto the pig heart that uh, are not causing harm. And they will elute over time. 
Probably true. Molecular rejection can be, uh, can be identified now with microarrays, and uh, this particular patient is pretty complicated. Um, if our patient was having uh, antibody-mediated rejection, he would have, uh, his biopsy would be in that zone with all the red dots. If he had a normal heart, it would be in the, in the gray dot, dot zone, and if he had cell-mediated rejection, uh, he would be a blue dot. Our patient is squarely in the gray dots, A1. So just looking at the RNA arrays um, is just so new. In our first patient, we didn't have this opportunity. So again, we just keep extending what we need to learn to do better. So we can actually reduce immune suppression on this patient instead of increasing it by some reflex because of that biopsy. Well, what are we learning? This is uh, my next to last slide. We've learned this is difficult. I can tell you it's emotionally draining. We dance when we can, but we understand it may be the last dance at any time. Patient selection is really hard. We have to find a patient who has no option, but who we can still benefit. Um, Von Starnes and I had a short conversation before this because we both have a concept that maybe this should be something tried in children as a bridge to heart transplantation. The neonatal, neonatal children, the hypoplasts, the kids that are so hard to support when they fail. So I don't know who the best patient should be, but I think we're just gonna keep working where we are and try to get more, more information and maybe we can find the best population. At any point along the way, I think it's gonna be an opportunity to learn. The regulatory process is maddening, but fair. I mean, why would the FDA let you do this, right? I mean, I have two patients that have had a pig in, pig heart. I mean, why would they feel the need to say yes to that, right? Well, they understand the needs. They've told us what the pathway is, and we followed it, and we've been accepted in our applications. But the applications take time, and patients get sicker. So you identify a patient, you apply, the patient's much sicker at the end of the day. Um, I think we're learning about uh, how to translate immune suppression from a healthy baboon. Our baboons do great. Two hours, they're off the table in the cage. And most of them, you know, three to six months, they're doing fine. So, you know, that's very different than a patient hasn't been out of bed off ECMO for two months. So we have to find a way to translate lethal immune suppression to sick patients. And what is antibody-mediated rejection that xenotransplantation really is focused on? Um, what does it really look like in the 10-gene pig heart? And maybe some of those molecular gene arrays will help us stay in front of that and help us not over-immune suppress, but target suppression of plasma cells and T-regulatory cells in the way that uh, we can live with it happily ever after. It's been an honor to speak with you today. Um, we are growing and dancing, um, and uh, so are the donors. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services 
at facs.org.